The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning. You made it to the 1035 gathering. It took me a lot of thought to make sure I got that time right. So anyway, um, congratulations that you're here. Um, appreciate you making the change with us. I know, again, the heart behind it is just to continue to make room for people that are looking to join uh, our church family. So appreciate you doing that. And uh, we're going to, uh, we're in a series called Made to Crave. And uh, if you're looking for a spot to land, we'll be in Proverbs 1 kind of briefly because we're going to take on another big chunk. Last week, we took on a ginormous portion of the Old Testament, but um, we'll get to that here in a moment. A couple things just as a heads up. First of all, most of you are aware we're in the midst of a legacy campaign. Uh, we're looking to raise some money as we, we're moving towards the expansion of our building. And um, we, uh, the, the due date for the bids from the general contractors was Friday. We received all three of those. And I'm just asking you to pray for wisdom as we crunch the numbers and go through the details of each bid because that's part of the process. And throughout the next couple of weeks, that's what's going to be going on. And we would appreciate your prayers because we want to make the best decision that we can. And so that's kind of what's happening as far as that goes. We have not yet received the final green light from the city with the permits, but we're moving that direction. The, the plan as far as the actual expansion is somewhere in, in about May, June, the work will begin. So just a heads up on that. And of course, if you haven't uh, checked out the Legacy Campaign, you could do it online. There's the brochures in the lobby with the renderings over there. And we would love for you, if you haven't yet uh, made a pledge to, to take a step and do that, because we talk about this all the time. It takes all of us for we to win. So just something to be aware of. Um, but anyway, uh, also finally, Baptism Sunday. I know it was said here, but we have an incredible time every time we do Baptism Sunday, hearing the stories of life change celebrating people making commitment to faith in Christ. If you've made a commitment to faith in Jesus, but since you've made that commitment, you've yet to be water baptized, it's coming up at the end of the month and we want you to sign up and do that. If you wonder what baptism is, it's basically an outward declaration of your faith in Jesus, the inward transformation that God has done in Jesus. So anyway, love for you to sign up. I want to celebrate with you uh, that happening. It's at the end of the month. Um, like I said, in our series Made to Crave, the hope has been in this series, and again, we still have a few more to go, is that we've painted a picture of uh, kind of what, what these pieces of the scriptures are about. And so last week we took on the historical books and then we skipped through a little portion and then we took on the prophetic books. It was a lot, and if you missed it, you can go back and listen. Today, we're taking on the scriptures that are in between those two pieces of the Old Testament. And so in order, the Old Testament is the first five books, the Pentateuch, okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the historical books, Joshua, all the way through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then we skip some books and then we go to the prophetic. The prophetic fits in the historical, okay? Moving on. Today, we're gonna take on what's basically called the poetry and wisdom books of the Old Testament. What those are, are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. So these are the, the poetic slash wisdom books of the Old Testament. Now, I mentioned Proverbs 1 because this is kind of, if you put it all in a nutshell, what are these about? Let me just give it to you. Now, this leans towards the wisdom conversation, but let me just give it to you. Proverbs 1, starting in verse 2, says this, for gaining wisdom, for gaining instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning 
and let the discerning get guidance for understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is, again, the nutshell of all that we're going to talk about today. The idea is this. When you read this portion of Scripture, when you read all of it, but in particular, this portion of Scripture, the idea is it's not just to gain knowledge. It's not just that you know more facts. I know PhDs that that are theologians that have read Scripture, know the original languages, smarter than probably any of us in the room almost combined. They're not believers, and they've been studiers of Scripture for a long time. I know people like that. There's a certain tragedy when that happens, because here's what Paul says in the New Testament. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes our head big. Knowledge gives us all kinds of information so that we can win a bunch of money on Jeopardy. (laughs) Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And, And let me connect that idea of love to what wisdom really is. Knowledge is simply the gathering and understanding of facts, but wisdom, and I love how this is said. This is part of a commentary in a study Bible. Wisdom is the ability to live life well. It's the ability to know the right time to say or do something, and it includes the proper expression of emotions in relationship to circumstances. And I love that because, again, you can gain all kinds of knowledge about stuff, but when you and I are readers and studiers of Scripture, and we'll talk about, again, poetic and wisdom books, the idea is life change should be happening. Transformation should be happening. We don't just live the same lives every day and simply check the I read the chapter box in the Bible plan. The idea is it transforms us. That's what it means for you and I to learn to walk in wisdom. Now, real quick, take a step back from this whole conversation and say this. When you and I read these wisdom and poetic books, what it's going to do is help you understand a few themes. One, the folly of all kinds of things. And here's just a simple and not exhaustive list. The folly of drunkenness, the folly of greed, the folly of sexual appetites outside of God's design, the folly of anger or blinding rage, of selfishness, of pride, of not learning from poor decisions you've already made, the sting of disappointment, the sting of suffering, the sting of sin's grip, as well as the problems of things like hatred and bigotry. These are, this is a sampling of some of the themes that you're going to find when you read the poetic books. The other side of the equation, though, is it's going to talk about you and I walking out things that are virtuous, walking out things that we should lean into in order to be wise individuals. Again, simple, again, not exhaustive, but a list. The virtue of self-control, the virtue of forgiveness, the virtue of generosity, of God-given sexual guardrails obeyed, of humility, of learning how to make wise decisions, the purpose of life and the value of relying on God over our own intellect. Because we live in a world that says, I have God inside of me and I can figure things out on my own because God's gonna sort of guide me. And you have all kinds of examples throughout the history of the planet of how that gets off the rails real quick. And so it's that idea of walking out wisdom that includes the need for utter humility. 
Let me read again part of a study note from one of the Bibles that, that, that I've used in the past. In these books, humans express their joyful and troubled prayers to God in the Psalms. They offer wise advice for healthy living in Proverbs. The struggle with apparent unfairness in life in Job and in Ecclesiastes, and they celebrate God's creation of male and female in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Through these books, we're presented with a human perspective more than other parts of Scripture, but God's voice clearly, sorry, God's voice speaks clearly and authoritatively. So the topic of wisdom is a big portion of what we learn when we read these books, but there's also the value of understanding there's poetry in these books. Now, the reason that's important is you've maybe read, you know, Robert Frost or, uh, you know, Shakespeare, or John Donne or, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Seuss, I suppose, or whatever, but you, you, you read all kinds of poetry throughout your life. In fact, most songs you listen to are technically poetry put to music and sometimes they rhyme, sometimes they don't. There's all kinds of formulas for it. It's important to remember though, when you read poetry, that there's certain language used in order to evoke certain emotion, in order to sometimes get to the depth of what's going on inside of us. But it's also important to understand when language like that is used, you could say sort of flowery language at times is used. You have to remove yourself from assuming those are laws and principles God has given us. Because what happens is when you misinterpret things like poetic books in scripture, Scripture, you, you all of a sudden experience something different than what you're reading and go, wait a minute, these aren't congruent, so something's not true here. So it's important to understand in poetry, there's going to be set, certain things are going to be said that taken at face value are easy to misunderstand. And it happens all the time. And it's why there are times where you and I can walk away from reading Scripture and go, why doesn't that seem to work? And part of it is understanding there's symbolism, there's flowery language, there's things described that aren't meant to be laws and principles as much as, like I said, they're meant to delve into the heart of what's going on inside of us. And sometimes it's not the prophets that will do it. It's not just the historical books and understanding who God is in history that will do it. Sometimes, like I said, it's the poetry and the wisdom that gets to the core of what's going on inside and how important it is to explore those things as well. So there's poetry, there's wisdom. Now let, let's get into these books because uh, we only have a few minutes here, but I'm gonna start with the book of Job. Now, some of you, I've made this joke before, assumed it was Job and you're like, if I turn in my stuff on Indeed and I, and I read this book, I'm gonna interview really well and you missed it by a million miles because it's a guy named Job. So I know that's really lame. Okay, it's a guy named Job and it's basically the story of something that happens in his life and how bad he's afflicted by these experiences, but the lesson to be learned in the end. Let me, let me give it to you. When you open up the book of Job, which we read through just a few weeks ago in the reading plan that we put out there, it opens up and it gives you kind of this window into kind of the spiritual world and it shows you know, the God of heaven and earth and kind of the angels lining up and there's good and there's bad. And, and then there's this conversation between Satan and God. It's kind of unique here, but, but he's talking about how he's looking to tempt someone. And God literally in this conversation says, have you considered Job? Job is described as the righteous, the most righteous person at this point who's ever lived. 
And, he, and he, he's leaned into his faith and he fears God, all this stuff. And, and so the long and the short of it is God allows Job to be afflicted by all kinds of calamity. And Job loses all kinds of his, his own kids and uh, all kinds of different people that work for him. He loses all, it's agrarian society, all kinds of uh, livestock and the things that make him rich. And he's left with nothing and he's, he's broken. And what happens is three of his friends show up. Now, these are great friends. And they're amazing. And, and, and th- th- you can't imagine better friends for about seven days. Because as it starts, it says that they sit with Job and they don't say anything. They just simply weep with him for seven days. Great start. We should all take notes. But the problem is, as soon as Job speaks up, Job says, I don't understand. I've been disillusioned. My tears are my food. I can't sleep. What in the world could God even be up to? I'm at a loss, basically. And then his friends start speaking and it all goes downhill from there. Because each of his friends, and again, there's nuance and context to it, but each of his friends basically say, Job, something has happened in your life that has made God do this to you. You, you've somehow deserved this because there's sin in your life. You've disobeyed. You've missed it. You're ignorant. Whatever it is, you're, you're some, there's something wrong and you need to repent. And over and over, Job's like, look, I can lay my case before God. I don't know what there is in my life. I've served him. I've done all the things I'm supposed to do. None of this makes any sense. And each of his friends come back again and say, there must be something in your life. You're clearly doing something wrong. Can you imagine having lost all that Job lost and saying, I don't understand who God is. And your friends simply go, there's sin in your life. How comforting is that? How awesome is that? Now, to keep it short, and again, you can read it for yourself and and, and it's, it's, it's pretty intriguing, but in the end, the Lord shows up and gives them insight. And, and first of all, he rebukes the friends for being bad friends, thank God. And then he, he, he rebukes Job because he basically says, Job, you come to me wanting every answer to everything and I'm not gonna give it to you. And we struggle with that. It's not, and I've said this before, it's not that we can't ask God why. It's not that we can't lament over the struggle of not understanding. But if we always demand to understand everything all the time about how our lives are supposed to work, we will always be disillusioned. It's its own sermon. It's its own message within itself. But what I love is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was writing a letter to the churches that are scattered due to persecution, James in the New Testament. In chapter five, if you're taking notes, write down James 5, 11, says this. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James takes the whole of the book of Job and in one sentence reminds us of the power of perseverance. Another word that I like, maybe even better today, the power of long suffering. And that's not a famous thing to say in our world. We want everything to be good right away. And we get this picture of if we love God, our lives will always work out amazingly perfect. And yet we live it out and go, but it's not true. It's not even scriptural. We experience suffering. We go through hard things. You've sat down with doctors before. You've experienced loss before. You've walked through disillusionment before. If you've been a believer in Jesus for any length of time, we've all had to walk those roads. And James says, consider Job as a story of what it means to persevere through hard stuff. 
And sometimes hard stuff is marriage. And sometimes hard stuff is kids. Sometimes hard stuff is job stuff and income. And sometimes hard stuff is health. And there's all kinds of examples. But in one verse, James sums it up. Be people of perseverance because God is a God of compassion and mercy. You've got to trust it even when you don't always see it. I'm going to move on to Psalms. Psalms, another word for it is, this, is songs. And these were things that, again, many of them put to music, sung in temple worship, similar to the idea of you and I gathering in an environment like this and, and we worship together. These are things that were written down and, and, and they're written with all kinds of different themes. Keep this in mind. There are certain psalms that are psalms of praise and they glorify God and they're upbeat and they're on the mountaintop of life going, this is amazing and God is so good. And there are psalms on the other end where they're saying, where is God and why do I have to despair and all of my friends don't like me anymore? more and life is hard and I don't get any of it. And there's everything in between, but the beauty of Psalms is once again, put to a poetic nature, it's the heart inside of us of, of being real before God. It's the fact that we can sing and we can lament and we can cry and we can celebrate and it's all mixed in the Psalms. There's lessons in waiting and trusting. There's lessons in worship and crying out to God. There's lessons in declaring his goodness in both victory, but also at times declaring his goodness in defeat. Like I said, they were used in national worship, in temple worship. Um, in certain groups, they were memorized in blocks, especially the rabbinic tradition. They would memorize literally some of them, all of the Psalms. Can you imagine? There's 150 of them. Mem putting them to memory. Um, but, but again, powerful songs of the heart of humans and their connection to God. Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of the introduction to the whole book of 150 psalms. And Psalm 1 is the picture of the ideal person of virtue versus the person of vice and the challenge to be the right person. And the, psalm, and the second psalm is really this theme of God is sovereign above all. And those are at the core, something to remember as now you continue through Psalm 3 through 150. The Psalms vary in length if you've ever read them. There are a couple of them that are just a couple of verses. There are others like Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And it goes on and on and on and on. And by the way, it uses the acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet and there's more to it. But, but again, they vary in length and they're, they're, they're amazing because again, it's, it's in essence bearing the heart of human beings before God and, and, and how you and I operate if we're honest in our hearts. The writers of, of the Psalms include Moses wrote one of them, Psalm 90. David wrote most, um, not most, David wrote 73 of the Psalms. Almost half of all of the Psalms were written by David. Um, Solomon wrote a couple of them. The sons of Korah wrote some of the Psalms. Asaph wrote uh, one of the Psalms, Ethan. And then um, one of the most dismal Psalms in the entire uh, book of Psalms is Psalm 88. And it's literally like this. God, where are you? I don't understand anything. I'm disillusioned. Do you even care or anything like that? The end. And that was written by a guy named He-Man, not the master of the universe, just to be clear. Some of you guys might remember from the 80s, the little cartoons, Skeletor and He-Man and stuff like that. Different character, different individual. Uh, but again, Psalm 88 written by He-Man, like he was kind of bent sideways and life was hard and he wrote Psalm 88. Um, there's another chunk of Psalms called the Songs of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. 
The reason they're called the, the songs of ascent is because they were either chanted or sung while, while Jews would pilgrimage from their cities into Jerusalem for certain festivals, for certain uh, gatherings, uh, first fruits and, and uh, harvest and things like that, uh, Passover. They would sing those songs in particular on their way because it was anticipating the gathering everyone together and the celebration of God's provision over and over. And so they would uh, sing those on their way into Jerusalem and towards the temple uh, as they gathered. Uh, my favorite Psalm probably, and I have a lot that I really like, um, Psalm 34 has probably been my favorite for a long time. I memorized it years and years ago because I felt like, man, I, I really love all that it says. I, I, I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but honestly, like the first verse, I will exalt or I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I've been a follower of Jesus 31 years and I still don't have that verse nailed right? Just one verse. Like, man, I always want praise and, and God's glory to be on my lips. And it just doesn't always happen. And, and so the challenge of it, but I love that song. And you can continue through how God is our encampment and taste and see that the Lord is good, which we sung about, by the way, today in one of our songs. Um, it's a great Psalm. So if you want a great one to read and maybe think about memorizing Psalm 34 is a great one. Um, I got an A in my Psalms class when I was going to school for ministry and I was so proud of it because um, I wasn't always an A student. Anybody else out there with me, maybe? So um, I, school is, it was kind of a struggle for me to a degree, but I remember I took a Psalms class. It was a, a 401 level course. So one of the hardest ones that you can take. I took it, I, I wanna learn this. And, and the, the teacher uh, was, was Daryl Hobson and I love him, I appreciate him dearly, you know, but um, he was a really hard teacher. In fact, his nickname around campus was Dr death um, because he was so hard. I know it's so bad, right? But uh, he was really, really hard. But what I loved was he challenged you to think. And I took this class and my final project was Psalm 103. And I love Psalm 103, but I delved into it and tried to understand the details of each verse and stuff. And I would meet with him after class or meet him in his office and try to hammer through it to get this project done. Um, needless to say, I got an A in that class and I was so proud of it because I didn't get a lot of A's, but also because it was that class with that teacher. And I'm like, man, I'm actually smart maybe. So anyway, but um. Psalm 103. Psalm 27, I love the struggle back and forth of, of the good of life and the tough things of life and, and all that. But my favorite is the last verse. And it's something, again, just briefly, it says this, wait on the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait on the Lord. And in the world that we live in, where we want instant, whatever God's supposed to say, where we want instant fulfillment of this situation, instant get through this trial, instant answer, instant breakthrough, instant whatever. While on one hand, we can pray and ask God for things and say, Lord, please today, I wanna encourage us to consider what it looks like to wait on the Lord. And maybe because it's kind of the theme of Job, but also I think because this is like the, the curse of our society and our world in particular, we want everything right away the way we want it. And, and I love how it's that surrender. God, I'm just waiting on you. I'm gonna be strong, I'm gonna lean into you and trust even though I don't see everything, but I'm gonna believe that you're gonna do something as I continue to persevere in the waiting. And that's the last verse of Psalm 27. Um, I'm gonna move into Proverbs. Uh, again, time is a bit of a challenge. I, I love Proverbs. Let, let, me, let me just say this. Proverbs, first of all, when you read it, it is Solomon writing most of it. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. There's all kinds of stories as you read scripture about him. But um, Solomon writes a lot of it. The first part, and maybe you never knew this about Proverbs, but the first part of Proverbs is basically the dedication of the book to his sons that are becoming adults. Now, I say that because in our world today, I'm not sure that men are really good at handing off wisdom to our sons as they're moving into adulthood. In fact, I think sometimes we're really bad at it. 
And so if you wanna help yourself with you're raising some sons that are getting into those teen years, 15, 18s, whatever, let me encourage you to lean into Psalms. But I love how basically the first, sorry, Proverbs, I keep saying Psalms, Proverbs. I love how the first nine chapters of Proverbs really are the dedication of a father to a son becoming an adult. And by the way, it echoes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Yes, he talks about love, but he says, when I was a child, I thought and reasoned and did things like a child. But as I became a man, I was forced to set aside childish things. And what Paul is doing is trying to echo to the young men rising up in their faith in Christ to be men. And that's what the writer Solomon, the writer of Proverbs does. Let me challenge you young men to not walk in foolishness to not be given to folly, to not make excuses. And by the way, it's not just for, for guys, obviously. It's for gals as well, and, and all of it applies. But I do love that he addresses that because in our world, that's like this lost thing. Guys being challenged to become men the way they ought to be. And so I, I love that. And by the way, just a little nuance of it, but you get to like Proverbs, I, I wanna say five, six, seven, six, seven, eight maybe, is really this long story of like, look, do you understand what lust can do in your life? And I'm saying this to men in this room today, and it may not just be young men, but what lust can do and, and what, to be honest, sexual perversion can do to you and your life and how it will damage deeply the relationships that you think you want to have if you continue to allow that as an excuse. And I'm warning you with that. But read to today. Maybe you need to go home and read Proverbs 6, 7, 8. Deep warning about staying away from those things that will destroy your sexual life, period. Okay, moving on. That was probably a little PG-13. Okay. Um, Proverbs, um, again, the first part is that dedicated. The second part is, is almost all a kind of couplets. And it's talking about how to walk out wisdom, how to stay away from blind rage and anger and foolishness that way, how to, how to not walk with you know, the ungodly, how to, how to lean into things that are wise. And, and there's all kinds of stuff written. But um, it takes on things like your home life. And, and even raising kids, it takes on friendship. It takes on living in generosity and business dealings and all of that stuff. Uh, yes, it takes on marriage for sure. Um, and also it takes on how you and I, if we go into a, a certain workplace and we have a boss, how we should treat our boss. And, and this sounds a little funny, but you could swap out the word king in the context of Proverbs and simply put boss there because it's that idea of you and I being forced to be humble and, and reverent towards those that we're supposed to respect in an organization where somebody's higher up than we are. So anyway, a little freebie there. Um, there's a few different ways that Proverbs are used, and this is just a sampling, but bear with me here. It may not help you a ton. Um, some Psalms are, are called parallelism. Sorry, Proverbs. I keep saying that. I'm sorry. Um, some Proverbs are called parallelism. And what it will do is it will take something positive and expound on it with greater detail. Uh, a good example in chapter 15, 23, and I just threw these out there. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word? Others are antithesis, and it's the opposite. It's the idea that here's, here's one way and here's another way and comparing them together. Uh, Proverbs 15, 22, the verse before the one I just read says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. So here's failure, here's success. Here's one way to look at it. Here's another. Um, and then another, and this is that imagery thing when we talk about kind of poetry within it. Um, Proverbs 15, nine. So right in the same window of space there in scripture. Proverbs 15, nine, the way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns but the path of the upright is a highway. Again, it's imagery, but the idea is this. If you're a sluggard, you make excuses for why you can't get anywhere in life. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, again, using imagery, if you're somebody who walks uprightly, 
you find that there's paths everywhere of opportunity that you're willing to take. But again, it's the imagery that, okay, if you don't understand this, like, I don't understand that. There's thorns? Anyway, okay. Um, here's, here's a, again, I'll, I'll move on here, but uh, Proverbs has 31 chapters. And so here's a habit. If, if you're, you, you want to kind of lean into this, 31 chapters, if you read, you know, a chapter a, a day every month, you could read the book of Proverbs. And of course, there's some, you know, months that are a little shorter, you could read a chapter or more. But um, a great habit to get into, but it's going to bring that conviction of like, hey, here, here's ways that you're tripping up. And I love Proverbs because what I, what I appreciate about it is it really does confront those excuses that we make that the older that we get, the more we're set in our ways. The writer of Proverbs over, over and over is like, I call bull. That's not true. I call, let me challenge your character. I call, let's not make excuses for who we are simply because we keep making the same mistakes. Stop it. And I love that about Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes is really thinking deeply about life's questions. And, and um, if you read just chapter one, it, it opens up like this. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it here. Ecclesiastes one, written by Solomon. And it says this, these are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. And here it is. Here's your opening. Verse two, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Isn't that super hopeful? You're like, this is great. But he goes on and, and what he's gonna do, and I'll just try to paraphrase this, is he's gonna take on all kinds of themes in life. And he says this, Solomon, and, and you can follow his life and, and watch this in the historical books. But he says, I took to diligent hard work and amassed all kinds of wealth and was prosperous. And here's what I found once I reached the pinnacle of, and you could say the Elon Musk or the you know Bill Gates or whoever, I, I amassed all this stuff. In the end of the day, what happens is I die and it all goes to someone else and it really is meaningless to continue to pursue getting rich and getting rich and getting rich. And then he takes on pleasure. And he goes, everything that I felt like in my heart, I wanted, I gave myself to. And there's all kinds of bad examples of that. He says, I gave myself to all this pleasure and all this stuff. And in the end, what I was left with was emptiness. And once again, for some of us where you've lived life, not part of church world and done your own thing and, and, and spun your own web, you end up in a mess of, of your own making. He goes on to talk about, I understood the wisdom of, of, of beauty and I created gardens and, and, and all kinds of seating areas and beautiful curtains and, and, and stuff grew up and I, I added animals to it and I basically created a beautiful zoo, more or less, is what he's saying. And I had this incredible space where people love to come and enjoy relaxing. And what I found is even in that, it didn't lead to anything amazing. It was empty. In the end, as you continue, and Ecclesiastes can be hard to understand, but what he's saying is I've pursued all this stuff and all of it in the end is meaningless if you do it apart from your faith. Literally, that's what he says. He says, in the end, what we're called to do is have a reverence for our creator, God. What we're called to do is follow what he's designed for us. And to paraphrase, when we get to the New Testament next week, we're gonna talk about specifically what he means for you and I to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself. And again, Ecclesiastes doesn't paraphrase that but he literally is saying, you can pursue all this stuff, but apart from God, none of it means anything. And then you get to Song of Solomon and we can have the air conditioning turned up a minute. That would be good. <laughs> Song, Song of Solomon. There, there, were, uh, there were theologians for a long time who believed that Song of Solomon was actually um, the idea of imagery between Israel and God and this intimate relationship. And while that's true that there is intimacy between Israel and, and God, New Testament writers would say, well, wait a minute, or, or New Covenant theologians would say, wait a minute, we believe it's a picture of the church and God now, which would be true, except that in the end, what Song of Solomon is really about 
is God's design for romantic intimacy in the bounds of a relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And you watch the, 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 this language and we don't understand it today. And I've joked before about how like, man, girl, your, your hair's like a flock of goats. And you're like, huh? what does that mean? You know, your, your navel is just like this awesome goblet. Like, huh? Your legs are like cedar trees, girl. Like, this is not hitting. Um, but when you understand Song of Solomon for what it is, what you understand is God's design for intimacy within marriage. And it really is a beautiful picture when you get into it. Now, the reason I bring this up and the reason these exist, and I said it earlier, is that we can understand our faith and the nature of a creative and amazing and deep emotional faith that we're called to have. That it's not just the prophet saying, do this, repent, do this. It's not just the history of going, wow, God's revealing himself. It begins to navigate into the human heart. Here's what God wants to do to transform us. And there's a depth to it. And it can be poetic and it can be beautiful and it can be wise, but it's meant to get at the core at times that sometimes we're not willing to let it. And so you read Psalms, you read, and that's what it's meant to do. Father, today, I pray that your spirit would continue to take us deeper that my hope throughout this series is that we continue to have this craving to, to, to take in what we read and to allow it to transform us, that that's wisdom, not just knowledge. And God, we surrender to this journey. And while today, again, is kind of an overview of some of these books, that God, there would stir in us a greater understanding of things that you're saying in ways that you're growing us, not just in biblical literacy, but in transformation, because that's what the word does in tandem with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, we surrender to you in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.